The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, CEO of the Cancer Support Community. The Wellness Community and Gildas Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at more than 100 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. We have two great guests on the show today to talk about Breast cancer. Breast cancer impacts one in eight women in the United States. And and for as often as breast cancer is discussed uh, all around us, there are still many myths surrounding the diagnosis and treatment. And um, certainly uh, what we know about breast cancer is always evolving. Today, we're going to discuss myths, facts, and innovations surrounding breast cancer from diagnosis to treatment to reconstruction and, and to life after cancer. Our first guest today is Dr. John West. Dr. West is a surgeon in Orange, California, and is affiliated with multiple hospitals in the area. He received his medical degree from University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine, and opened Orange County's first breast cancer center in 1988. He was co-founder and chairman of the board of the Breast Health Awareness Foundation, which is a community outreach program dedicated to the early detection of breast cancer. He has been named a best doctor in America and has been recognized as one of the best doctors in Orange County. His most recent book, Prevent, Survive, Thrive, Every Woman's Guide to Optimal Breast Care came out on October 4th. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you, Kim. It's a pleasure to be here. And also on our show today is Dr. John West's son, Dr. Justin West. So, John, you must have been a great uh, inspiration to your son to hear hear that he's also gone into the field of medicine. Justin is a board-certified plastic surgeon and the medical director of Finesse Plastic Surgery. Justin has advanced fellowship training in aesthetic surgery of the face, breast, and body. He received his Bachelor of Arts from Pomona College in Claremont, California, and his medical degree from Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia. He attended a plastic and reconstructive surgery residency at Georgetown University Hospital in Washington. Washington, D.C., where he trained under world-renowned surgeons in the fields of aesthetic and reconstructive breast surgery. Justin contributed several chapters on breast reconstruction surgery to his father's book. So we are going to jump in and get started. I'm going to start with you, Dr. John West, uh, father of the duo. Um, so I, you know, I really want to start, John, if you could help us with some basics. Let's start from the beginning, the point of diagnosis. How is breast cancer usually diagnosed? Well, the way we would like it to be diagnosed 
in general is to find it in asymptomatic women who go in for screening mammograms and a calcification or a density is seen, a needle core biopsy is done, and the diagnosis is made, and we take it from there. Commonly, particularly for younger women who are not starting their screening mammograms, which really usually starts yearly at 40, but the younger women almost always present as a lump. And so when they present to us as a lump or a new lump or a growing lump, uh, we rely very heavily on the ultrasound. And if they're closer, if they're in their 30s, we, we go ahead and do a mammogram. That usually tells us whether it's benign or malignant, but then the next step is a needle core biopsy to establish an accurate diagnosis. Okay, and so let's go back for a minute. Let's say that you're of an age where you're getting regular mammograms, you see something suspicious on the mammogram. What happens next? Well, typically in our situation, we do all the work up that same day, but in most centers throughout the United States, the woman is called back for additional views. Additional views are done. They establish a high-risk area or an area of concern. Uh, they also check it out on the ultrasound. If the spot shows up on the ultrasound, we prefer to do an ultrasound core needle biopsy. If it only shows up on the mammograms, is is the case with calcifications, which are a common way uh, cancers present, then we do what's called a stereotactic needle biopsy where the patient lies on a table, their breast is protrudes through the table, there's a mammogram machine below the table that can create a three-dimensional image, and then they adjust the needle to go into the area of the calcifications and take a sample. That, that goes off to pathology. Within a couple of days, we get a diagnosis, and we go from there. Okay. So let's talk about the go from there part, uh, Dr. West. We are, uh, talk to us a little bit about the staging of breast cancer, the various stages and what they mean. And then let's get into, let's get into some of the sort of treatment options. And I know obviously what kind of treatment you get is driven by the stage of your disease. So let's start with the staging question and then we can get into the treatment conversation. Okay, so let's just take it from stage zero, which is a precancer. It's a non-invasive cancer, and it's considered to be, in virtually all cases, curable. The rare exception is when it's also associated with some invasion, which changes the prognosis very slightly. In other words, if we see calcifications on the mammogram, we biopsy it, it comes back stage zero breast cancer. The typical treatment is just a lumpectomy, sometimes with... Uh, more higher grade ductal carcinomas in situ. We also uh, radiate uh, those patients are if, if it's estrogen receptor positive. Those patients are put on a hormone blocking pill. But in general, those patients do extraordinarily well. Sometimes the DCIS is more extensive and a mastectomy is required, and we can go into that uh, in a little bit because that's something Justin and I then talk about in, in great uh, detail. Mm -hmm. What is uh, the potential for reconstruction if we're going to have to do a mastectomy. So stage mm -hmm. one breast cancers are small, uh, and there's the lymph nodes in these cases are negative. The tumor is no bigger than about th uh, three quarters of an inch. We actually use uh, two sonometers as the more specific threshold. So tumors that are two sonometers are below, and negative lymph nodes are stage one. Uh, stage four, I'm going to skip two and three for right now, is where it's spread beyond the breast. Stage three is tumors typically over five centimeters in diameter or two inches in diameter. They're locally advanced. They're obvious tumors. The lymph nodes are typically obvious. And then stage two is uh, just above uh, 
two centimeters and goes up to five centimeters. So it goes from about three quarters of an inch to mm-hmm. two inches in diameter with or without lymph node involvement. And is it true, Dr. West, I think I've heard or, 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 or read that there is, is even some debate about whether certain stage zero breast cancers should even be called cancer or categorized, categorized as cancers. I know, for example, certain skin cancers are not counted in, um, you know, some of the statistics around cancer in general. Is there a debate about whether some of these stage zeros should even be referred to as cancers? There's a major debate, and it's a very, very important question, and it alludes to two big issues. The most important one is the, the level of expertise of your pathologist. At our hospital, we have breast-only uh, pathologists, and so that we know that our readings are consistent with the guidelines set up uh, nationally, and, and they correspond to what critical reviewers do when, when they look at outside centers and see how the quality of their pathology. So quality of the report is important because some things mm-hmm. people, one group might call DCIS, another group may call, call atypical hyperplasia, and the treatment is quite different. Rare, rare cases, you might have a DCIS that somebody, uh, when you, we look at it at second opinion, we find some microinvasion. That's not such a big deal because we're going to take that tumor out anyway. But the quality of the pathology is important. The next step is the quality of the surgical medical team that's taking care of the patient. So if I have a 42-year-old woman with a little uh, low-grade non-invasive cancer, uh, that cancer is going to progress very slowly. So it might take 10 or 15 years to invade. But still, a 40-year-old is going to be 55 by the time it invades or, or 55 or 60, it's not going to go away is the point. Mm-hmm. Now you get that same low-grade non-invasive cancer in a 75 or 80-year-old, and you can give her the option of, of just observing it. And mm-hmm. I think that's where we over-treat a lot of these people. The low-grade uh, stage 1 cancers, we simply, 70 and over, we don't radiate. We just do a lumpectomy, and we give them the option of uh, hormone blockade. We encourage them to take hormone blockade. But uh, on the other hand, sometimes the older women will get aggressive cancers and need more aggressive treatment. So you, it's not just the stage, but more importantly is the biology. So mm-hmm. a low-grade tumor and an elderly person, very non-aggressive treatment, but the same low-grade cancer in a younger person uh, needs to have definitive treatment to prevent that from coming back and recurring or, or growing out of control. So when you have 20, 30, 40 years of life ahead of you, what, what might be a relatively low-grade condition still needs appropriate treatment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Dr. West, we've got a couple minutes until our uh, our first break here. But um, so, you know, obviously what's clear in what you're describing is whether you need surgery, chemo, radiation, what the treatment interventions are very much driven by what the stage of the disease is. Um, let's talk, let's just take our last couple minutes in this segment to talk about stage four metastatic breast cancer. Um, how and when is this is this particular type of cancer diagnosed, and why would she, should we really put a special focus on raising awareness of stage four breast cancer? Well, of course, the big reason is the progress we're making in stage four. I mean, it used to be thought to be hopeless, but now we know that particularly the HER2 positive, the ones that are biologically aggressive and have a, a protein receptor that leads to rapid growth, we could block those tumors with a drug called Herceptin, uh, and we add Progetta, another drug. that They can make these things just melt away and stay under control for decades. And we have patients that are now 20 years 
out or close to that that have uh, been on this therapy and, and continue to go on the therapy. So that's incredibly uh, favorable compared to what we had in the past. Uh, we are also making progress with the estrogen receptor positive tumors that have been more difficult for us to control when they metastasize. And all we had in the past was estrogen blocking uh, therapy. And that wasn't all that effective, but now we have more drugs that influence the, the estrogen receptor and, and how it interacts within the cell. And these newer drugs are, are making it, uh, giving us great progress in dealing with metastatic diseases, uh, estrogen receptor uh, positive. And then the third category, biologic category, are the triple negatives. And again, these were killer ca- uh, cancers when they metastasized. Uh, but now, uh, you know, we've got some... Um, uh, some real breakthroughs uh, in therapy, uh, immune modulators are, are allowing us to, again, influence the body's immune system working in conjunction with chemotherapy. And so almost for anybody with metastatic cancer, we have much more hope now than we had just a few years uh, back. And uh, just we, we've got just a few seconds until our break, but can you just tell our listeners what, what triple negative breast cancer is? Well, to go over that, effective just, cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The cancer support community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the cancer support community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community a global network of education and hope. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts, and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. 
Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Welcome back to Frankly Terms Speaking I About don't Cancer. Understand. I'm your host, Choices. Kim Tebaldo from the I Cancer Support Community. Today's but show is sponsored in part by Bristol Myers Squibb, Novo Cure, Taiho Oncology Links Inc. We're talking today with trials. Dr. John Help West and his son, Dr. Justin West, authors of Prevent, break away from Survive, cancer. Thrive, Created Everyone's by Guide to Optimal Breast Care. About myths, facts, and innovations in breast cancer care today. Dr. John West, I want to start this segment off by talking a little bit about the book, and congratulations uh, on your book. Again, for our listeners, it's called Prevent, Survive, Thrive, Every Woman's Guide to Optimal Breast Care. Tell our listeners a little bit about the book and really what motivated you uh, uh, to write the book. What can readers uh, expect? Give us a little background. Well, just a quick background. I wrote a novel about 20 years ago, and it, there were so many problems with getting it out to the community, and I said I'd never write another book again. And then certain <laughs> things happened over time, and I realized that my 40 years of experience and my perspective on what's going on is really important, and I can give my patients what I think is optimal care, but most of the women in the United States just don't have direct access to a, an experienced breast surgeon or, more importantly, a team of doctors uh, oncologists, surgeons, radiation therapists, researchers, plastic surgeons, all the people that are needed to do ideal comprehensive care. It just isn't available. So what I wanted to do is write a book to empower women. There's so much confusing guidelines in terms of mammography, density, self-exam, risk assessment, cell phones. It goes, it goes on and on, and the public is by and large confused. So the first thing I wanted to do is to to explain to women the controversies. I wanted to outline the basic aspects of care. I wanted them to be empowered by knowing more about breast care than the average primary care doctor. And that's what they need to know because the primary care doctors are getting so busy now because of changes in medicine, and they're so overwhelmed with regulations and, and paperwork and computer work that they just don't have time to, to keep up with all these things and certainly don't have time to discuss all this uh, with women. So the book is what it's says, Every Woman's Guide to Optimal Breast Care, and it answers questions from birth to elderly. It gives women uh, empowered to say, for instance, they find a lump, the doctor says, oh, you're too young, or it doesn't run in your family, or don't worry about it. You say, look, doc, I read Dr. West's book. This lump needs to be evaluated. I want a directed ultrasound. I want a, a, a directed mammogram. If there's any abnormality, I want a needle core biopsy. If you don't find anything, I want you to follow me at two, four, and six months, as outlined in the book. And oh, by the way, Dr. West said, if you don't want to follow these directions, you should find another doctor. That's empowerment mm. in my mind. Mm, terrific. Terrific. Um, Dr. Justin West, I love the fact that you, this is a, a, a father-son uh, project and endeavor, and I know you contributed several chapters to your um, father's book. Can you talk to us, uh, Justin, a little bit about your involvement in the project and, and what was it like to collaborate with your father on such a meaningful project? Yeah, you know, it's um, breast cancer has really been um, part of my 
part of our, it's just part of our family. You know, my father has been a breast expert for years. So, you know, I grew up with a breast surgeon in the family and my mother does, uh, teaches breast health exam classes and lymphedema classes. So breast cancer was always a part of my, I guess it was, you know, part of my childhood and then became a part of my adulthood. Um, and so, you know, it's a, it's a topic that's really important to us. I think when my dad mentioned that he was going to write the book, uh, I also had flashbacks to how difficult it was for when he wrote his first book. I thought, well, that's a big challenge and he's a busy person. But, you know, what occurred to me is, you know, the other thought was, hey, it's about time. There's not as many people in the country, I think, who have the substantial amount of experience that he has. You know, he was one of the earliest people to put together a breast cancer center in Orange County, you know, almost 20-something years ago, and I watched that whole uh, practice grow. Um, so, you know, he has this wealth of knowledge, and, you know, one of the things as you watch a surgeon, you know, go through their career is you get, you get more and more experience, and that experience is really important to share. So I think that, uh, you know, he's, he's got this huge core of information that just, I think it's important to share with the world. He's got an interesting perspective after treating thousands and thousands of, of patients, and it just made sense to share it. So when he asked me to be involved, you know, my answer was, of course, I would, you know, contribute my part for the reconstruction chapters. So, uh, but it was funny, you know, my father and I have written papers for years. You know, when I was in high school and college, my father would write papers for journals, and uh, he, I've always been part of the editing process. Uh, we work really well together. Uh, we work well in the operating room together. We work well outside the operating room together. So it just made sense to, to do this uh, as a team. Now, he did 99% of the work. My contribution is, if you look at the, the totality of the book, it's only a couple chapters in a pretty decent-sized book, so I didn't do a lot, but uh, I think I was there to support him and to help him when he had questions and to help edit things so that we could take things out of, you know, we, the concept was not to make it medical jargon, we, you know, so I try to help him sometimes mm-hmm. uh, to convert the language so I think that, you know, that uh, anybody who picks up the book could sort of understand it really clearly because it's important. Like, you know, my dad talks a lot about empowerment. It's, it's a word that's really important to me, too. I think that you know, it's, it's important to physicians to educate our patients. Um, yeah. In the old days, uh, we used to make, there was this, it was a paternalistic approach to medicine. You know, the physician mm-hmm. would basically decide the patient's treatment plan. These days, we like to educate so that patients can be empowered to make their own decisions. But if you don't understand what you're going through, you can't do that. So education and, power, and empowerment is a really critical part of, I think, how we treat patients. Yeah. Yeah, and we certainly agree. That's certainly the core of our model at the cancer support community, the idea to be a educated, engaged, and empowered patient. Um, Justin, let me stay with you because let's let's get into those areas of expertise that you bring uh, to this project and that you bring to your patients every day. Just take a minute or two uh, to talk to our listeners about really what factors go into deciding whether or not to undergo reconstruction. How do you decide if this is a procedure that's right for you? Well, I think first and foremost, you know, patients, um, they sort of self-select. So a patient has to decide, do they want to undergo a reconstruction or not? And what I'll, I guess what I would say is the vast majority of patients these days uh, want to feel whole at the end of their cancer surgery. So um, the, in terms of, I guess so the question is, from my point of view as a surgeon, who I select, well, we're looking for people who are healthy. You know, we don't typically offer reconstruction. If, if somebody is if somebody's otherwise unhealthy, they've had, they recently had a bypass surgery, they've had multiple strokes. If they're unhealthy, well, they still need to have their cancer treat, treated, but maybe they don't need several extra hours of reconstruction that might increase their risk of an additional problem. But for most of our patients are young, they're healthy, whether they're 30 or 60, you know, they they don't tend to have a lot of other what we call morbidities. They're not uh, otherwise unhealthy people. So 
you know, the, my philosophy when I, when I speak with my father or referring breast surgeons, I think that every woman deserves the right to at least meet with a plastic surgeon to discuss what her options would be. I don't think it makes sense to, um, to it should be a very inclusive conversation. So, um, you know, the sad fact is that the American Society of Plastic Surgery follows statistics, and there was a, the, the, the stats every year show that about 30% of people, um, uh, only about 35% of people across the country were getting reconstruction consults several years ago. That trend is changing. Our society is putting a huge effort into pushing education, but it's a substantial percentage of people who aren't offered a consult. I think that the biggest mistake the breast surgeons can make is not to is to make that decision for the patient. To my mind, the breast surgeon should automatically look at a patient and say, well, would you like to meet with a plastic surgeon? Because there's almost always something we can offer. Uh, and then let the surgeon and, the, and let the plastic surgeon who has the expertise and the patient who has the desire make that decision together. So I guess the short answer is that I think everybody deserves at least to have that consultation, and then they can decide for themselves whether it makes sense to do something. And does the, we had a chance to hear from your father in the previous segment about different stages of breast cancer. Does the stage of your cancer, uh, is that a determining factor in whether or not you qualify for reconstruction? Well, you know, I guess you could say yes and no. At the end of the day, if a patient has uh, if a patient has a really poor prognosis, we might offer them something very simple. Um, but you know, the truth is, I would say I've done reconstruction on all stages of breast cancer. Uh, in many cases, you know, even if it's a stage four, we don't always we don't really know how long a patient um, their, what their life expectancy can be. You know, with an aggressive cancer. So I would say that you know whether a patient has six months or, or six years, most patients want to feel whole. I think that the a cancer diagnosis is already devastating. To then go through, you know, to undergo an aggressive surgery where a breast is removed, to not be offered a reconstruction, to have to look in that mirror and not feel whole. You know, I have patients who have, you know, come up to me and said, "Look, I know I don't have long, but I don't, I, you know, when I when I pass, I want to, I want to go feeling whole." And I think mm-hmm. that's important. So if somebody again is, if they're unhealthy, well, then we're going to either offer them no reconstruction or something very basic and simple. Um, mm-hmm. But the vast majority of our patients were able to offer some form of reconstruction to make them to make them feel good and whole and feminine and confident when this is done. Mm. So we've got a couple you know, Justin, minutes. One of the things I, yeah, I think, please, if, if John, you don't mind interrupting, that one of the big things, was, I mean, people tend to think reconstruction mastectomy, but we're finding with the large-breasted women, we're just doing a lumpectomy. When, when Justin and I work together and plan it out, I can do a much bigger removal of the cancer if he then goes in and reduces that breast and fills in the defect and then matches the other side. Our patients who have undergone this procedure are so incredibly happy. They look better than they've looked for, you know, in, until they were in their 20s where they looked look that good. They can't keep their tops on there. So, I mean, it's just it's impressive to see the happiness and the joy when they come in and say, look, you know, I look better than I've looked for the last 20 years. I mean, that's real progress. And that's not a big procedure. I mean, it's, it's certainly big. Well, you're talking about, lump you're not to interrupt it, you, but you're talking about two totally different things, right? The question yeah. was initially, you know, who can you offer to? And, and you know, is there a stage beyond which we don't offer reconstruction versus a completely different concept, which we can talk about, I think, which is warrants a conversation which is on plastic surgery. So what are the range of options for people outside of mastectomy? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you want to get mm-hmm. into that a little bit? Yeah, we do, well, we've got only maybe about a minute 
uh, a minute until well, our break. I'll, I'll so. summarize it. I can summarize it for you real quick because it actually is a yep. very important point. You know, yeah, like go the, ahead. the point my father brought up was that people classically think of that reconstruction is only associated with mastectomy, but the fact is there's a whole host of different procedures that we do after simple lumpectomies as well that can be that can completely change not only the cancer outcome but the aesthetic outcome associated with lumpectomies. So patients shouldn't just assume because they're having a simple procedure like a lumpectomy that they should not at least have a conversation with the plastic surgeon. Essentially, no matter how the cancer is treated, there's some sort of reconstruction associated with that that can not only improve the outcome but also deliver a better aesthetic uh, result as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, so regardless of, of, of the stage, really, it sounds like when you talk about being empowered, really understanding for the patient, understanding what the different options are, depending on the stage of the disease and what the surgery, chemo, radiation might look like, that there are perhaps more options than folks might think going into this or folks might think based on maybe the basic information they're reading on the Internet, Justin. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think that, you know, the, there's, 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 just, uh, there's a huge array of procedures, and they're, they're constantly evolving. So I think the theme is, you know, look, yeah. the, the patients with cancer, first and foremost, want to have their cancer treated. But right, I sure. think that the, the long term, the fact is that most patients are going to live a very long time. Mm-hmm. And I think those are, these are patients who are going to look in the mirror every day when they get out of the shower, when they're dressing. Sure. And part of it, that long-term recovery is also feeling good about the way you look. And I think the patients yeah. should just yep. be very aware of there yeah. are options to improve the way you look, no matter how the cancer is treated, whether it's a lumpectomy, a mastectomy, there's a Got whole it. host of procedures. It's, it's, it's about finding a plastic surgeon who has that skill set, who actually Got does it. breast reconstruction. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. Great. One yeah, other thing. Absolutely. I we're gonna add. we're gonna have to take a quick break here, guys. This is okay. frankly speaking about cancer. Um, we've got a lot, as you can as you can tell, we've got a lot to talk about here. We're gonna jump into some of the myths and misconceptions about breast cancer after the break with Dr. John West and Dr. Justin West. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIA B or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. Hi, 
I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. We're back with Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim T. Baldo. Today's show is sponsored in part by Celgene Corporation, EMD Serono, and Takeda Oncology. The show today is about things you may not know about breast cancer. Uh, on the segment, we've got uh, two terrific guests, Dr. John West and his son, Dr. Justin West, authors of a book called Prevent, Survive, Thrive, Every Woman's Guide to Optimal Breast Care. And this book is helping us clear up some of the myths, perhaps, uh, and misconceptions that we hold uh, about breast cancer. There's a lot to cover here. Um, So let's let's jump in, uh, Dr. John West, and do a little bit of uh, perhaps a myth uh, busting. I'm going to say a statement and you tell me if it's a myth and how we uh, how we dispel it. So let me go with number one here. Mammograms do more harm than good and are not a great method of detection. Well, thank you for asking the premier question of the moment. (laughs) There is a big uh, uh, controversy, probably one of the greatest controversies that drove me to write the book, because there's a large group of people that agree that it's with what your statement said that they, you know, cause can cause more harm than good, and it is preposterous. It's almost criminal to state that it's based on faulty data, faulty information, faulty study design. When you look at a well-designed study. Like the one that just came out of Canada a couple of years ago, using modern imaging equipment, and just looking at those women who actually had actually had a mammogram. For women in their 40s, there's a 40% mortality reduction in the women who participated in regular screening. Now, not every one of those had a yearly mammogram. Some of them missed a few appointments, but still 40% mortality reduction is magnificent. But think about this. 
that study did not understand or wasn't prepared to deal with the issue of breast density. We know that some cancers are missed on a mammogram, but for regular risk women with dense breasts, if we add ultrasound, we double the pickup of small cancers. For higher risk women like Angelina Jolie or BRCA positive patients, we add MRI screening yearly. If we were to apply high quality mammogram, particularly the 3D mammogram in women with dense breasts, screening ultrasound for average risk women and MRI screening for high risk women, we would do better than just cutting breast cancer mortality in half. We would cut it back 80%. And just at this time, we're making this incredible progress. We have a group from the government, uh, the uh, U.S. Preventative Task Force Services, is saying don't, giving insurance companies an excuse not to pay for mammograms for women in their 40s, to pay only every other year from 50 to age 74, and stop payment at that time. Young women will die needlessly because of this flawed concept. It is criminal, and the public should stand up against this and fight back and not let it happen. Well, that was pretty clear, John, your position uh, on that. Let me go to another one. Uh, Self-breast exam- self examinations do not work. True or false? Well, true and false. It's true if you don't do it properly, which most women don't do. They kind of play patty cakes with their breasts, and, you know, they're worried they're looking for lumps. And if you're looking for a lump, you'll find a lump everywhere. You have to learn, you have to be taught to do proper breast self-exam. So the key time to start it is the, the day the doctor examines you and said that your breasts are normal, and if you're 40 or over, your mammogram's normal. The, the, obje- the object is, is to understand the pattern of the normal breast. So if a woman goes home and uh, after she's been told she's normal and tries to focus on learning the pattern of the normal and spends several nights trying to get that mental image of the normal and then does it monthly, if something changes, you go, ooh, what's that? And I've had patients come to me with cancers at the size of your fingertips. I, I could barely even feel them, and they noticed them quite obviously because they knew what their normal felt like. So we have a whole video on our BeAware Foundation website to teach women to do breast self-exam. It does take some time. Uh, I strongly urge them to do it tonight uh, that I've examined them. For menstruating women, we do it five to ten days after the onset of the menstrual period when the breast is least stimulated by estrogen and is the easiest exam to do. But if you know the normal and you do it regularly, you have a major layer of protection against the delayed diagnosis of breast cancer because we know some breast cancers show up between mammograms. Now, we add ultrasound and we add MRI. We're going to have fewer of those what we call interval cancers. But still, you need to protect yourself. You need to do the self-exam. And self-exam, when done properly, is a layer of protection against delayed diagnosis of breast cancer. And read my book, Chapter 14 or whatever it is. It tells you step-by-step how to do it. And you can link to our website, BeAwareFoundation.org, and watch a video that I've done that that goes over it again step-by-step. So it's something that women can learn to do and should learn to do. So one more for you, John, and then I'm going to turn to Justin. Um, Genetic testing is expensive and only affordable for people like Angelina Jolie. Well, that was the case when Angelina Jolie was tested. It was $4,000. Now, uh, that was only partial sequencing of the two BRCA genes, one and two. Now we have full sequencing, which gives us much more information on those two genes. It gives us 28 other high-risk mutations, and the cost out-of-pocket is $249. You can go directly to the coloredgenomics.com website. You do not have to have a doctor referral. They have doctors there. They have genetic counselors there. If you put in your MasterCard and pay 249 bucks, a, a test kit.
kit comes to your door. You put saliva in it, fill it up, in a prepaid envelope. You send it back. Four, four to eight weeks later, you get your uh, information. Now, I don't think it's for everybody, but it's for everybody who's concerned and wants an answer. As far as I'm concerned, knowledge is power. And we've had cases of silent carriers, women who have BRCA mutations, but didn't, weren't aware of it because it wasn't in their family. And had we known about those women, had they been tested, say, at mm-hmm. 25 or 30, and they're positive, we could have caught it a lot earlier because we could start screening with MRIs and screening more aggressively or considering bilateral nipple sparing mastectomy and preventing it from happening, as with mm-hmm. Angelina Jolie. So the progress in genetic testing is taking place so fast that mm. everybody's head is spinning, and it's hard to come up with rules. When I wrote the chapter, that was my hardest chapter to write because mm. where do you draw the line? And I knew the minute I pu- it's published, there, it's partially out of date. You know, right, I'll have to right, go for version right. two. Yeah, yeah. So let me shift to you, uh, Dr. Justin West. Um, breast implants raise your risk of cancer, true or false? False. So, you know, the breast implants are one of the most uh, studied implantable devices in the history of medicine. Uh, there's, there's been controversy associated around that, and one of the many, many questions that was, that, that's been asked for time is, you know, do they cause cancer? Um, so when we, when we talk about uh, breast cancer the way we all think of it, the answer is no. Now, that being said, there is uh, something that's referred to as breast implant-associated anaplastic large-cell lymphoma. So it, there's a, uh, it's a lymphoma cancer, which is different than a, a standard breast cancer. Uh, there's been maybe about 100 of these cases diagnosed worldwide wide. Um, it's a very, very uncommon cancer. You know, the estimate is that maybe one in 500,000 uh, patients might develop, develop this over a lifetime. Uh, it, it appears to be related not to the implant, uh, the, what the content of the implant, but the shell. So um, there is, yes, a very rare form of lymphoma that can be associated. There's no cause, there, no one's ever, we haven't been able to demonstrate causation. In other words, we can't prove that the implants are causing it, but there is a cancer that it seems to be associated with a very, very small percentage of women who have breast implants. The good news is it in, ver- in the vast majority of cases, is very treatable. Um, but the types of breast cancer that we see on a day-to-day basis, uh, the time that, that we're talking about today, no, implants do not cause uh, breast cancers. So, Justin, can you just take a minute to tell us, you know, just a minute or two to tell us about breast reconstruction? How, how does it work? Is it, are you always putting in a breast, uh, you know, implant after a mastectomy? Can you just tell us? Sure. Yeah. Right. So after a patient has a mastectomy, there's there's two main options that patients have. One is that they can do what we call implant reconstruction. The other option is what we call um, flap reconstruction. So you can use a patient's own tissue. So the tissue that we typically use, the classic one is the belly. So if somebody has a little bit more full of the belly, let's say it's somebody who might be a good candidate for a tummy tuck. You know, they've got a little bit more stuff in the lower belly than they want. They've got some excess skin, some excess fat. We can take that and we can build one or two breasts with it. Uh, that's called a tram flap or a deep flap. Uh, we can also use the skin uh, and muscle from the back to reconstruct a breast. It's called a latissimus flap reconstruction. But there's also there's several other flaps we can use. We can use tissue from the buttocks. We can use tissue sort of from all over to reconstruct a breast. But the classic one is usually is the use of the abdomen. The nice thing about that is you get two benefits. You get improvement in the way the belly looks, and then you get to, uh, to have your breast reconstructed. Not all patients are candidates for it, so that's where the consultation becomes very important because we have to actually physically see the patient and assess them and figure out what their goals are and then what their body sort of allows them to do. Um, now, if you look at statistics, about 70 to 80% of patients across the country do choose to do implant reconstruction. In my practice, it's closer to 90%. Um, but uh, those are the two main concepts, implants or flaps. So before we go to our break, John, let me ask you about another um, myth. Uh, cancer 
will not recur or spread if you have a mastectomy. True or false? False. And that's a really important point, and we have to point that out to our patients who think that it might. The very first or early part of the discussion when somebody was diagnosed with cancer and starting to consider alternative treatments is to say survival rate is exactly the same whether you have a lumpectomy, a proper lumpectomy with clear margins and radiation, removal of the lymph nodes and whatever other treatment is necessary versus mastectomy. There is a little bit higher recurrence of, of cancers within the breast that have had lumpectomy with radiation, but it doesn't translate into a, a, a uh, lowering survival rate. So the important thing is lumpectomy is just as good at saving your life as, as a mastectomy. Now, we can't always do a lumpectomy. If there's multiple cancers in a breast, we have no choice but to do a mastectomy. If we have real large cancers now, we give chemo up front and shrink them down. And many times, cases that we would have done a mastectomy, we can get by with a lumpectomy and radiation. So you do have to individualize. Progress is happening so great. It takes a team of doctors who, and the other member of our team is Dr. John Link, who also wrote the definitive book for patients who have established uh, breast cancer. Uh, we work as a team. We meet every week. We present every case. The pathologist there, the radiation therapist is there. So there's every patient you have to start from scratch and review the whole multitude of options and then listen to them and help them make the right decision. For, but, the, but the key is that it's for them to understand that taking the breast off does not improve survival. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think this is uh, this has been just a great conversation and some sort of myth busting uh, for our listeners. So I'm glad we got through some of those questions. We're coming up on another uh, on another break here. We obviously still have quite a bit to cover with doctors John and Justin West, father and son team from California. Uh, this is frankly speaking about cancer. Uh, don't go away. We've got a lot more to cover, and we're going to turn a little bit to some of the social and emotional challenges of a cancer diagnosis and also the importance of the uh, the family members and the caregivers in the cancer experience. This is frankly speaking about cancer. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health & Wellness. I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Cancer, it's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. 
But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you a breakaway from cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. We're back with Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo. Today's show has been sponsored in part by Lily Oncology and Insight Corporation. We're closing out our show on breast cancer with Dr. John West and his son, Dr. Justin West, authors of a new book called Prevent, Survive, Thrive, Every Woman's Guide to Optimal Breast Care. I want to ask both of you, and I'm going to start with you, John, um, about support. What role does social and emotional support play in treating breast cancer, and how important is it for patients and caregivers to have support during, through, and, and after their treatment? It's essential to their emotional well-being, and I think it's essential to their recuperation, and it may actually improve uh, overall survival. I think that the woman who's under stress, who doesn't have a support system, who feels all alone, who feels that uh, uh, that everything is dark and that her, the future is sad, or is going to be stressed out, and I think that's cortisol or whatever it is, a hormone. Yeah. I think it's, it's disruptive of the healing process. We we want yeah. we have our own volunteer. So when I talk to a newly diagnosed patient, I have a survivor in the room. We have one survivor of metastatic disease. It's been, uh, it's been 30 years since her treatment, and she is very inspirational for people who come to us with locally advanced disease or metastatic disease, so we have to match the volunteer to the patient. We inspire. We want the family to be encouraged to be caregivers. We have a support group that meets regularly. We have a men's support group, and the men play an important role, and sometimes it's frustrating for them to try to support the wife. The wife may not you know, be uh, you say you're not you're not paying attention to me, and then he tries to pay more attention. That you're you're bothering me now. They feel they have to learn how to be good listeners and how to back off and how to learn to be supportive. And I think it's, that support is more na- natural for a woman. Uh, so I think we think that support is is a critical part of the, the importance of hope. And we always I- explain to patients that, the, that there no matter what where the chips are down or what the challenges are, there's all we're making such great progress in breast cancer care, there is always hope for every patient. Yeah. Justin, expand on that for me a little bit because I can imagine. So, you know, A, talk a little bit about the importance from your perspective of social and emotional support, but also, Justin, talk about the role of the caregiver. I imagine you guys are very accustomed to meeting with with spouses, with family members, with adult children. Tell me about the importance of the caregiver and, and really support for the whole family. Yeah, I, I agree with my father. I don't think you can overemphasize it enough. One of the first things I think I notice when I walk into a room to do a new consult is who's with that patient. Um, the only times I get nervous is when a patient's by themselves because you look at them and say, this is a person who needs a team, and where is their team? Um, you know, when I walk in and there's a significant other or multiple people in the family, it makes me feel a lot better. Um, and I, it's one of the things I'm sort of subconscious, you know, assessing is what is that person's emotional involvement in the role some people are a little bit more passive and and, and not engaged um and and that makes you nervous and and you sort of have to actively pull that person into the um 
into the, the sort of the treatment plan. And then there's people who are very engaged. I have patients I've seen for over two years who have never come in alone. They've come in with their husband or their significant other or their whoever it may be, and that person is with them at every single visit. Mm-hmm. And um, you, you see, you can see that camaraderie, and they go through it as a team. But I think this is something that very, you know, in an ideal world, it very much takes a team. The, the patients need, you know, physically, initially, they need they need help to get through the, the the surgery itself. You know, they need a physical assistance, but the emotional component is really important. You know, they need that constant reassurance that you're going to be okay. I mean, they hear it from us on, you know, once a week when they come in. But they, you know, the that's only one. That's an hour out of an entire week. The, they need somebody who's going to help them. You know, the rest of that week. Um, and I think the more people helping with that, the, the better. The people who come in and say, "Well, I don't have, uh, you know, family uh, that I live with in town." I always, I always encourage them to lean on their neighbors. You know, this is the kind of thing where you know you call in all your favors and you bring that team and you build a team to help you get through it. Whether it's processing the information, making the decisions, coming in for the visits, um, you know, dealing with those moments at at ten o'clock at night where you know you're in pain and no one's there to help you. I mean, th- these are really important moments that patients need support during. So it's absolutely critical, I think. Yeah, yeah, I've uh, certainly agreed here. Um, John, as we, you know, as we get towards the um, end of the show, and maybe for some folks just joining us, um, tell them a little bit more about the book, what, what they can expect if they get their hands on your book and where they can find it. Again, folks, the book is called Prevent, Survive, Thrive, Every Woman's Guide to Optimal Breast Care. But John, tell folks what they can expect if they do get their hands on, on the book and, and where they can get it. Okay, well, you can just order it on, on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. All the bookstores are carrying it now, and hopefully they will continue to carry it uh, in the future. If there's any problems, they, uh, they can go to our website, uh, breastcare.com, and uh, get more information. In fact, it's a good good way to introduce yourself to the book. That's breastcare.com, but it, it gives an introduction. It gives the explanation of why the book was written, so we've just barely touched on that. You'll get several pages that really explain to you what I'm trying to accomplish and why. But I think the, the book covers women from, uh, you know, goes from birth to elderly, so it covers all breast-related uh, issues. It's not just uh, breast cancer, but breast pain, nipple discharge, a uh, whole host of things. It covers all the controversies that we've talked about, the mammography screening controversy, the density controversy. The book is written with a lot of stories, and, and one story that stands out to me of how important it is to, to, to teach by telling stories is an email I got a couple of years back that said, thank you, Dr. West, for saving my life. And I looked at the name. I didn't recognize her name. And I looked, it came from Ireland. I said, what, what would I be doing with a patient from Ireland? Well, as it turns out, she developed little changes on her nipple. Her doctor gave her a salve. It didn't get better. She went back to see him again. It was, finally, she goes to the internet. She finds an article I've written on Paget's disease, which is a focal form of cancer in, in the nipple. So she copies my article. She hands it to her doctor and says, Dr. West in Orange County, California, says, if you have what, if, 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 you know, if you have these changes, on the nipple that I have, you need to do a, a skin punch biopsy. So I said, okay, we'll do the biopsy. She had Paget's disease in the nipple, just mm-hmm. a little wide excision, and she's cured. But I've seen patients with Paget's disease that have been delayed years because their doctors, even dermatologists, missed the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Any of my readers have that change, and they've heard that story, it'll save their life. And it has a whole list of things that can ensure patients are at the cutting edge when it comes to diagnosing cancer early, and it most importantly, they're empowered to tell the doctor, no, you have to, my breasts are dense, you have to order an ultrasound. No, I'm at high risk, you have to send me to high risk screening. They need to take control of their breast care if they want to have the best outcomes. And this book will walk every woman through it step by step. 
Excellent. Excellent. Um, Justin, uh, we're coming to the end of the show here, but uh, a couple tips or words of advice for someone listening today who may have just been diagnosed with breast cancer, what would you tell them? Yeah, I think following along with what my dad said, I think that every patient um, should just really be their own best advocate. I think that you know patients need to learn to, to educate themselves and then to advocate for themselves. Um, some people are going to find themselves you know, uh, with the benefit of finding a doctor who knows what they're doing, has the skill and has the experience to treat them appropriately without help. Uh, and then some patients don't have access to that. And so those patients have to advocate more strongly for themselves. I think that, you know, if a patient hears an answer that they're not comfortable with, then get a second opinion or get a third opinion and push until you feel comfortable with what your mm-hmm. physician has done for you. Um, mm-hmm. I think that something we didn't talk about, but I'll just put out there as a parting thought is that um, recons- the, a woman's access to reconstruction never ends. Number one, um, because of the uh, Women's uh, Health Care and Cancer Right Act um, mm-hmm. from years ago, um, every woman has access through her insurance to reconstruction. And that access never changes. So we see mm-hmm. lots of patients every year who have had, uh, who either didn't, never had reconstruction initially or who had a really poor form of reconstruction that was done, let's say, 15 years ago when the technology was not as good. Those mm-hmm. are patients who can all come see us years later to have something right. fixed or to have a reconstruction they never had. Right. So, you know, you're, there's, never, there's no window that your right to yes. reconstruction never ends. Good, good, excellent. I want to thank our guests, Drs. John and Justin West uh, from California, talking about their book, Prevent, Survive, Thrive, Every Woman's Guide to Optimal Breast Care. Check the book out. I want to thank you for listening today to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo from the Cancer Support Community and just also want to remind our listeners that we have a whole host of in-person, online, and over-the-phone support services for people with breast cancer and people with all cancers at any stage of disease and for their family members and loved ones. Visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org or give us a call on our helpline at 888 793-9355. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.